Hey everyone, welcome to Take a Second, a weekly Come Follow Me podcast meant to strengthen our personal connections with Jesus Christ, as well as deepen our appreciation for His role in our Heavenly Father's universal plan of salvation. I'm Brian Ricks, and Stuart Black is here with me. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into uh, let's get into this week's scripture block. Welcome to 2023, huh? New. <laughs> New yeah. book, new year. New year, new book. New me. New, uh, hopefully <laughs> new me. Um, welcome back. I hope you had a, we all hope you had a great Christmas and a great new year and are uh, ready to jump in to the New Testament. I've, uh, I was sitting in Gospel Doctrine this week, this last week, and I had several comments from around, from, from our ward, and I think it's a pretty common sentiment in the church, this idea that... Um, I'm so glad to be in the New Testament because the Old Testament is uncomfortable. I, I'm not I'm not familiar with it. I don't understand it. I don't. Um, and I think a lot of the Old Testament we do that. Yeah. And so as I was sitting there thinking and kind of just pondering, like having had a great experience with the Old Testament, yeah. like I loved last year. Yeah. I, it dawned on me that you don't have to have had a great experience with the Old Testament to have last year's study benefit you this semester. Like there are things that are going to come up that that will just ring true. I, I remember the first time I ever took stats in college, and it was the first class where I ever learned the benefit of reading the material before going to class. And all of a sudden, things that I had read on my own and were way over my head, the teacher started talking about it, and the terms were familiar. Uh, similarly, like my oldest son did an online chemistry class through BYU his sophomore year. Might have even been his freshman year, um, and it and he he struggled with it, struggled with it, and then he took his ACT, his pre ACT, whatever you do your junior yeah. year, yeah. and uh, he had not taken any chemistry classes, but all of a sudden those phrases were familiar, and he didn't ace it, but he was comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> wow, bless you. I was holding that off as long <laughs> as I could. I think similarly, I think sometimes even if we didn't get a bunch out of the Old Testament. The fact that we went through it in the way that we did, yeah. I mean, it, more in depth, especially in Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of those other, and, and definitely the minor prophets, I think I think that's going to bless our, our New Testament study. We're going to see prophetic, we're going to see pro, the names of the prophets, we're going to see prophecies that, that we studied and, and paid attention to this time through the Old Testament that maybe we haven't before, yeah. and it's going to jump out at us in our study in the New Testament. And, and even culture, culturally, uh, specific laws regarding the law of Moses, mm-hmm. there's going to be aspects of that, that are going to paint the context of the time and place that Jesus and the apostles lived that we're going to appreciate more because of that. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I completely agree with that. I think one of our previous uh, podcasts, we, we talked about how the how the scriptures interrelate that the better you understand one, the better you understand the others. And, and even a little bit, if, if, you know, you had to rank your uh, proficiency in, in any of the books, if you feel like oh, I struggle a little bit more with the old Testament, it doesn't matter. Even if you're, if you learn some things this year, that's going to impact and bless you in your study of the new Testament this year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I, don't be don't be too down on yourself if you didn't really love the Old Testament experience, and certainly don't be down on yourself if you're feeling a sense of relief. Like it, it, <laughs> it doesn't mean it, it's not it's not bad to love one book of Scripture more than the other, but also anticipate the the experience blessing you moving in, into the New Testament. Yeah, 
I, this week is, is Matthew 1 and Luke, Luke 1, and I asked you before we started if you had a place you want to start, and you're like, ah, I don't know. So I, I thought we'd just talk about the Old Testament. Let's just start Matthew 1 then okay. and, and highlight a couple of these things. Um, I, I think that, uh, uh, and we'll, we'll probably emphasize this a couple of times as we're, as we're doing this, but if, if you understand the writer and his intended audience, it, it unlocks the Gospels even more and makes those kind of Oh, I see why he put those yeah. stories. You know, those types of things here. That Matthew is is uh, one of he's he's writing to um, a largely Jewish audience, and and he's showing that Jude uh, that Christianity is a fulfillment of Judaism. That it's okay that they're interrelated. That the Old Testament can now flow into the New Testament, and as Matthew's writing his gospel, so he's going to be uh, quoting a ton of prophecies, and he's tying in a lot of different scripture stories yeah. from the Old Testament. Yeah, Matthew is going to be one where it's last year's study one. is going yes. to like really, it's going to click and tie some dots. And, and, and it even starts here in, in, at the beginning of one. In, in verse one, he says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He mentions the two most important guys from the Old Testament yep. right off the bat. He says, Abraham and David, and he starts with David. Because he says, you need to understand that Jesus is the king. So let me start with the most important king previously. It's David. And then he marches through and he goes through all of these things. And um, all of this ties together. And I, I want to point something out here. And, and we'll bounce around a little bit. In 17, he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Which means 14 is important. Yep. At least to Matthew. And there's there's a few different ways to look at this. Um, David's Hebrew name would be spelled D-W-D. Um, and D is four. That W is six. And then it's another D at the end. So four, you add it up and it equals? Fourteen. Fourteen. So he's saying that Christ is the fulfillment of David, the son of David. And that's one of the reasons that he's saying, David, are you seeing the connection? You need to understand this. The Jews back then would have loved it. They hear this and they're like, this is so good. And by the way, Matthew even leaves out a couple of guys to make 14 work. He drops a few of the kings. He doesn't even mention them. He's like, well, there's 18 right there. But I want but 14, I want 14. Yep. because he's trying to help you understand this. Now, I, I just learned a, a, a new one I thought was, was so neat that the number 14, 7 is so important, so 14 is doubled. It's double perfection. And you're like, oh, oh that's, that's pretty cool. cool. And then the other one is uh, a lunar month has 28 days. And so you have the waxing and the waning. So you have this idea of Abraham is waxing up to King David, and from David would be waning. That's cool. Down it is. And then That's cool. back up from, from the after the destruction to Jesus, it's waxing up again to this. This is the moment we're anticipating. This is the thing that we're – he's basing it on the moon, and I'm like – that is really neat. That's pretty cool. To see that, that David is helping you see that every, all of these Old Testament prophets, are, are they're going to this moment, that Jesus is coming, and they're all preparing for it. And so in 16, it says, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And down in the footnotes, you'll see that um, Christ is the Hebrew title, Messiah. It's synonymous. It's the same thing that uh, all of the times that it mentioned Messiah in the Old Testament— you could just plug in Christ mm -hmm. and vice versa here that Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah. That, that Matthew is helping you and I understand that these prophecies of the Messiah taking care of his covenant people, you're going to see this again right here. So those are a couple of things I liked. I don't know if there's something you want to add on. So just with that, the title thing, when James Talmadge writes Jesus the Christ, he's very intentional. It's, it's the Christ. 
uh, he he makes a point in the book to say that Christ was not his last, last name. name. Yes, his his last name, as far as people in this day would have been known, he would have been Ben Joseph. Mm-hmm. He would have been Jesus, the son of Joseph. That's that's how other kids would have referred to him. And so the title of his book is really important to James Talmadge, that it's Jesus the Christ because he is the anointed one. He's the Messiah that's been prophesied of the Old Testament. And and Matthew picks up on that. I think, and it's probably also important to, to remember as we go through the New Testament that these four gospels are being written no sooner than 64, 65 years after the birth of Christ. Oh. So we're, this is all in retrospect. And that's, that's, if you're Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, that's difficult to write history in retrospect, especially for Matthew and John, who were so much a part of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's, difficult, it's difficult to write, if you're them, it's difficult to write the story, and, and John doesn't even try. Like, it's, it's pretty, every time John talks about Judas Iscariot, you know that John knows still what happened. Yeah, he's still <laughs> carrying that with him. Like he's the one that, from the very beginning. Yeah. And and while it's happening, though, I don't know that John has those feelings about Judas. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. Because they're all saying, is it me? Am yeah, I the bad guy? Yeah, the in night that of. moment, yes, yeah. they don't know. Yeah. But clearly, I mean, it, later on, every it, it seems like almost every time, at least off the top of my head, that John mentions Judas. Who he, was the thief. Who was the thief. Who was the betrayer. He, yeah. and, and so I think for some time, for us... We have our preconceived notions of who Jesus is. We know that as we study Matthew 1 and Luke 1, this babe that's being prophesied next week, the babe that's going to be born, we know that he ends up on the cross. Mm-hmm. And we read through these stories with that end in mind. And so it's kind of this, well, of course, everybody knows. And I think as we go through it this year, something that might help our study of the New Testament is to try not to look through it through that lens um, and to see a Jesus that that's new to us or that is put ourselves in that situation when you don't know what's happening. Can you imagine yourself being at the temple when Jesus prophesied that in three days, right? Can you, can you, we read that and we're like, Oh yeah, the resurrection. Well, what if you didn't have the, the knowledge of the resurrection that was coming? Maybe we'll appreciate Peter a little bit more when Matthew highlights the fact that Peter didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Well, neither would we. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's this great poem, and I have to see who it is before I can uh, quote it, or before I can. I, I have to see it written down. I can't remember who wrote it. Um, as, as you're looking, go ahead. There, there's just a phrase that, uh, as you were talking, I, that just came to mind. I've said before, and, and I don't know if somebody had said it to me, so I, I don't know if I'm plagiarizing here, but uh, it's we turn the page pretty fast when we study the scriptures. Yeah. We're, we're often we're like, why are you worried? He's going to be resurrected. Mm-hmm. Why, why are you worried? The boat's going to flow. Why are like all of these things where we're like, what's wrong with you? How are you doubting? You're like, yeah, but you're not there. How many times in my life ha- have I failed to flip the page a little faster? Because I'm in the moment, and, and I'm sure that if I were to write down everything that's happening, people who read my history are like, why are you worried? And I'm like, well, I didn't get yeah. to flip the page as fast as you. Mm-hmm. And, and they're like, yeah, but look at all these other times in your past. And you're like, sometimes in the moment, it's hard to remember that. And, and so to really live that and to be in the story. And, and I love what you're, what you're mentioning that these, these gospels are written later on, which means that they have not just an intended audience, but they have a message that they want yep. us to understand. And, and so just one other quick thought then with Matthew, um, in 23 says, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The very last chapter of Matthew is 28. 
um, and Jesus has been resurrected and he tells the, um, the apostles, this is 19 and 20, he says, go and, and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you all way or always in non-King James English, even unto the end of the world. Well, chapter one is I'm with you always. The last chapter is I'm with you always, which means in these pages, I'm with you always. Mm-hmm. Part of Matthew's message is Jesus is with you. And, and I love that he, he understood that as he's writing it because he wants to, the stories to testify of that principle laced throughout there because I, he knows what he's writing. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I know academics really, you talk about straining at gnats, that's really the definition of biblical <laughs> academics a lot of times. <laughs> and a lot of times they'll strain at the differences between the Gospels. And, and one of the explanations could be well, Matthew's trying to emphasize something different than Luke is emphasizing. Yeah. And so he's going to, that, that may be part of the reason why Matthew tells the story differently or why Matthew chooses to leave a story out that Luke doesn't or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And one of the messages of Matthew is, the one you mentioned earlier, Jesus Christ is the fulfilled prophecy pr- prophecies about, or messianic prophecies. Mm-hmm. He is the fulfillment in flesh. He is David's son. And, and then the other one is that he came to be with us. Mm-hmm. And he is with us even when he's not in the flesh with us. So this is the story about how he's with us in the flesh, but the message that should stay with us, those of us that are reading it now, 2,000 years later, is he's still with you. Yeah. And you'll see that as, you know, as, as we go through the miracles, look for that. Look at the miracles that Matthew mentions and, and ask yourself, how does this show that Christ is with me? So the, the poem I want, it's William Blake is the author. And uh, I think as we go through, we talk about the divisions within Christianity. And, and I, as a Latter-day Saint, often have conversations with non-Latter-day Saint Christians who say, you're not a Christian. And for a long time, I got offended by that. Like that and, and I mean, as a missionary, it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Book of Mormon, another testament. Um, William Blake said this, the vision of Christ that thou dost see is my vision's greatest enemy. Thine has a great hook nose like thine. Mine has a snub nose like to mine. Both read the Bible day and night, but thou readest black where I read white. And as we go through, I think, yes, look for those things. And, and I think it's important, Elder Anderson would say, it's important to be um, lit by previous spiritual experiences. As we go through and we see the Jesus we've seen in the past, the Jesus that has come to our aid, certainly sit in that light and be warmed by it. But at the same time, Let's let's look for the Jesuses that we've never seen before. Look for the Jesus that some of our non-Latter-day Saint brothers and sisters see in here. And let's appreciate that vision of Christ as well, rather than just kind of all too quickly turning the page on it and rejecting anything that doesn't fit our previous notions of him. So, Love that. Um, I, the only thing I wanted to point out from Matthew, and I, I we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'm, I think it's fascinating that in the early accounts of Jesus, they're all, those that come to know Jesus, it's always through angelic ministry. It's always through the, 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 the ministering of angels. And I think, you know, Elder, Elder McConkie defined the mysteries of the kingdom of God or the mysteries of God as, it's not the deep, dark secrets as in where is Kolob or, you know, what is Heavenly Mother's name? Those aren't the mysteries of the kingdom. The mysteries of the kingdom are simply anything that requires revelation to come to understand. And certainly 
Jesus is at the center of that. To truly understand his mission and to truly understand what he's done for mankind requires the ministering of angels. And you see that. It, to Joseph, it requires an angel. Even the preparation for Jesus with Zacharias and others requires an angel. Mary, it requires an angel. Simeon has had previous encounters with the, revel, the process of revelation when he sees, you know, when he's to prepare him to wait. Um, Anna has that as well as the promises that she has that she'll get to see Christ. If we're going to come to see Christ this year, it's going to take the ministering of angels in our own lives. We, we, President Nelson has emphasized over and over and over again, you won't survive. You won't stand without the, without the, the, the gift of, of revelation, without that process in our own lives being activated. We won't see Jesus the way we need to over the next 12 months. Love that. And, and you think of the restoration of the gospel, how that relates to uh, angelic messengers. And, and you think of, you know, those those the priesthood keys, how they're associated with the ministering of angels and, and what a blessing that is now to, to then study it through that, that vein. And, and I love that those angels are, they're the preparers because I, as you mentioned that it, it got me thinking, well, there's not a ton of other angel experiences after Jesus begins his mortal ministry. Wasn't necessary as much. Now you have Jesus who has started his ministry and can speak for himself, but all these preparations are let me help you see that he is coming yep. and, and let me help you see him. And, and that's, uh, I mean, Luke, that's, that's where he's starting here. Um, I, I don't know how much you wanted to, to dig into Zacharias's story. You you had a cool insight I, that you I, shared earlier. Yeah. So I, I'm just curious about this that. and I want to, I, I would love to know what other people, I've never seen this before. And so this is a new idea and, and maybe you're just going to thrash it and throw it aside and be like, yeah. That, <laughs> Turn the comments off on this. Yeah. One. <laughs> be like, uh, Brother Rick's is spending way too much time in his office. Um, and I don't remember, I, I remember I was reading, it was um, S. Kent Brown's commentary on Luke. And I don't even remember what he said, but all of a sudden it sparked a thought and I went, to the, I went to, straight to Luke and I didn't finish reading what uh, S. Kent Brown said. But this is the question. Here, here's, I'm going to propose this as, is it possible that the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth is at least to an extent um, parallel or symbolic of the Adam and Eve story in the Garden of Eden? And let me just walk you through some verses. In chapter 1, uh, verse 6, in reference to Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, verse 6 says, They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. That seems that sounds a lot like Adam and Eve walking naked before the Lord. Uh, they were not ashamed. They're not ashamed. There's, yeah, there's nothing in their life that they should be ashamed of. I don't think that's suggesting that they were perfect. Mm-hmm. Just that there was nothing in their life to be ashamed of. They had, you know, in, in the context of a President Nelson time period, they're repenting every single day. Yeah. Next verse, verse 7, they had no child. Um, Elizabeth was barren. Uh, that, that's very uh, Lehi. That's, that's one of the conditions of or situations of uh, the Garden Freefall. of Eden. Yeah, yeah so there, there's no children. Verse 8, and it came to pass that while he, uh, Zacharias, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. So he's, he's before God. He's in God's presence. Verse nine, he went into the temple. Now he's going there to fulfill his assignment as, as a priest. And this is, and there's a lot of context to this and Elder Talmadge gets into it in Jesus the Christ. And this is a big day for Zacharias. He's getting to go into the temple, into the holy place. And he's not the high priest. So he's not going into the holy of holies. He's just into that first 
place within the, the Lord's house. And by, by the way, just to outline a couple of those things that are in there, mm -hmm. you have the altar of incense separate from the altar of sacrifice yes. that's outside. So you have that, that they're burning incense in constantly day yep. and night. And then you have the table of showbread mm -hmm. and then you have the, the light. The menorah. Yeah. Yep. So those are the three real structures that you have in this room. Yes. So they're, I know you, we think light, like flip on a light switch, but it, it's not as light as you would think. No, it's, it's a candlestick. Yes. That's, that's keeping it lit. And, and for Zacharias, this would have been a momentous day. Like his whole family would have been excited about this. Mm -hmm. um, as a priest, as a, as a Levitical priest, um, the pinnacle of his service would have been getting to go in and attend to the altar of incense mm -hmm. right in front of the veil. The only thing that is separating man from God's presence, the, the cherubim that's on there. So he's, he's now as close to being in God's presence as, as anyone other than the high priest gets. While he's there, the angel of the Lord shows up in verse 13. And I, and I make a joke about this all the time. I'm like, the first thing angels show, say when they show up, fear not. Yep. Like, maybe you should change your approach. <laughs> like, may, maybe don't show up in a way that causes everybody to be afraid. On, but on the serious side of that, though, do you know what they do almost always? It's fear not. And then they say their name. And that's almost when the fear leaves them. Because Gabriel does the same thing with Mary. Yeah. The, She's yep. still terrified. Like, I don't know if, how you're not scared of an angel, but he's like, I know you. And you think of the first word, word of the restoration. Yes. Don't okay. be – Joseph. You know, so I, I love that idea. Your that, comment is way, <laughs> way better than mine is, but I, I still there think is a, yeah, I'm with angels you. show up a little differently so that you don't scare people to death. Right. Um, and notice the one time an angel doesn't say, fear not. It's to Alma the Younger because <laughs> he, he wants him to be scared. <laughs> he should be afraid, yeah. Um, so now Zacharias, the message is delivered. You're gonna, your wife is going to have a child, and you're going to name him John. And Zacharias in verse 18 says, Whereby shall I know, know this? For I am an old man, and my well, wife well stricken in years. And in verse 20, he said, Gabriel says to him, Behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day of these things. Uh, the day of these, the day these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their person. So now Zacharias, he's going to get to finish his time in the temple. Uh, the people are surprised because he spends so much time. And there's, there's the other details here. But back to my original thought that, that this story could be connected to Adam, and also, and therefore, if it's an Adam and Eve story, it's also a, a temple story. Right. So you've got, you've got Zacharias and Elizabeth who are blameless before God. Zacharias, in the presence of God, expresses doubt in the messenger of God. Not, not a sin, but possibly we could make a transgression, which President Oaks has made a clear distinction between what Adam and Eve did in the garden as not being sinful, but being a transgression. And I think you could make the same connection here. But as a result of the transgression, he leaves the Lord's presence and goes out of the temple and carries the consequence of his action in the Lord's presence out into the world amongst everyone else. And no one else can figure out what's going on. They assume that he's seen a vision, and, and but, but nobody's really sure. And he carries that consequence until not the birth of Christ, but the birth of the messenger who brings the message of Christ. This is, this is the preparer. This is the one that's meant to prepare the way for Jesus. And you can see that in... Um, in Adam and Eve's experience, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden and they're told to do something. They have no idea why, but they're going to do it anyway. And once they're obedient to that, to the, to the messenger of the angel, the angel shows up and says, you know, what are you doing? I'm sacrificing. I don't have any idea why. And the angel says, let me tell you why. And, and so when the preparer shows up, then Zacharias's, 
his consequences lifted. And I just, I, I'm fascinated with this idea of uh, a retelling in a new way of the same old story. That you were in the presence of God. We leave the presence of God because of something we do. And then the message of the gospel, the good news, brings us back into favor, not necessarily because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus will do in this context, or in our case, of what he has done. So I'm curious. I just I, like I'm curious. I've you know I've shared it with you. I'd love to. I'm I'm just I'm excited to share this with people. I've already texted it out to a couple of my family members to say what do you guys think. Um, this is a, it's a new way for me seeing seeing the story of Zacharias and, and Elizabeth. So kind of a fun yeah. fun twist. Love that. And and one of the things I think uh, as a family or in a class and and make sure you're you're doing it in the right way. But but you're contrasting the two stories mm-hmm. and comparing the two stories in, in good ways and bad ways. That. Uh, in 18, where Zechariah says, whereby shall I know this? Mary asks, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And, and one of the ways I personally read this, so you could, you could have a discussion about why is Zechariah struck dumb and Mary goes off and she's okay. Yeah. That uh, I think Zechariah, for me personally, as I look at the text this way, he wants proof. Mary's asking, how do I build the boat? What, how do you want me to do this? She's a spouse, and she's like, should I get married faster? Is it a different man? Like, she, all of that is inferred by how shall this be, seeing I know not a man. So she wants to know, how do you want me to accomplish it, where Zacharias is saying, this is impossible. And I, I think it's important to note who Zacharias and, and Elizabeth, their story is so common in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and I, I think that's important to understand who John then is. John is really then the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament prophets. He's the bridge. Yep. He's the one who's helping them anciently and modern day see you got to find Jesus. And, and you have those examples of, of Abraham and uh, Hannah. Um, uh, Samson is another one of those. Rachel, some barren mothers who want a son more than anything else, and a miracle happens. Yeah. And they're they're they have a uh, a specific purpose that they're fulfilling. And I love that that's who John is. John has a specific purpose. And by the way, we'll get other John the Baptist stories. But don't you love how well he fulfills that? Yeah. He is he is all about his job to point people to the Savior. He never gets in the way of it mm-hmm. ever. It's never about John. It's always about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, you can't have a better friend than that or a yeah. family member. And uh, <clears throat> with that, as Mary is, is speaking to Gabriel. Um, Before you move oh, on, go I, ahead, please. Just, as you talk about that, the, the way to balance those two things. Yes, I, questions. I, I've mm-hmm. talked about that as well. And I, there's a couple of things that I can see. Number one, you mentioned it briefly, that this idea that Zacharias, you should be totally comfortable with barren women giving birth. It's an ancient thing, and yes. you are a priest. You're a priest of Levi. You, you, from a boy, you've been reading yes. these verses, and depending on when your birthday is, Zacharias, you've memorized a part of, uh, a part of the Torah, that probably has a story of a barren woman giving birth. Mm-hmm. So, number one, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the miracles, I love in the Book of Mormon. We talk about the purposes of the Book of Mormon, and as a missionary, I always jump to the one of, to to show to Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. But before that is mentioned. Moroni says, the purpose of this book is to show you what the great things that God has done. Yeah. Well, why? Why does God want me to know what he's done for Nephi and for Alma and for these others? It's because God wants me to know that if I've done it for them, I'll do it for you. And so in, that, in the context of that principle, 
Zacharias shouldn't doubt because God's already done this in the past. Now, in Mary's case, God has never done this. This is new. Mm -hmm. And so I can see God making a little room. Uh, and, And maybe this is not the maybe this is a different side of the same principle, but you've got Zacharias, who's this. 70, 80 year old, old priest man. who yeah. in his own world, in his own words, is an old man and is working in the temple. And, and you've got Mary, who's this little teenage girl. Yeah. And you've got Zacharias, who's in the temple. And you've got Mary, who's at home. And so the Lord, you know, the, the principle from the Doctrine and Covenants, where much is given, much is required. Zacharias, I expect you to be a little more faithful and to not express doubt. And Mary, if, if you read Mary's question as being a, a doubtful one of this is impossible, how can this happen? Which the, the angel later on is going to say, for with God, nothing is impossible, Mary. Th- even this is possible. If that's the case, you can see him being more patient with her as she's learning. And you can see that with members of the church. Early on, we read church history and you're like, how can the Lord put up with them? Do we and, and behaving and doing this? I remember as a missionary in the Dominican Republic, we had a missionary who was behaving in a way that... I thought should warrant sending him home. And I remember talking with my president, President Bramwell, who was kind of my experience with just that kind of a priesthood leader. I I never had a relationship with my other priesthood leaders. It's not because they weren't the same caliber as President Bramwell, but it's the first time I had ever connected with one like this. And we, I was having a conversation with him and it was a, a pretty blunt conversation. We were driving, I think I was taking him up to the airport and, and on the way I just, finally, out of my own frustration and lack of vision, said, why don't you send elder so-and-so home? And then almost bringing to his memory, when he had first gotten there, he had sent an elder home for doing the same thing that this elder was doing. And, and my mission president explained to me that this other missionary had only been a member of the church for a year and that if we had sent him home, he would go home in shame. Whereas the other missionary that had been sent home had been a member all of his life and knew better and there was and I just I see the Lord I see the individual touch of the Lord knowing each of these individuals and what what he's given them and what he can expect from them and and weighing those out individually rather than collectively and I I love that I love the fact that we would point out you you've already mentioned the fact that the angel says their name and knows them individually what the how the angel treats them testifies of the fact that the Lord knows them individually. Yeah. And and you look at the outcome of both stories that that, that Zacharias rejoices and he praises God. Mm-hmm. The story works out j- just fine for him. There is no problems and no hiccups. He, he's like, his name's John. They're like, you don't know anybody named John. He's like, I don't care. I know a guy named Gabriel. <laughs> don't need to name him John. Mm-hmm. And, and you look at Mary's response in 38, be it unto me according to thy word. I do not know a more faithful response than I trust you. That's it. I, I don't know how this is going to work out, because if you look at the social outcome of what is going to happen here, this is not going to work out. But Mary says, no, it'll be fine. Be it unto me according to your word. Beca- so, so I love that. I, I do, too. We had a, I, so we taught women in the scriptures last, last semester, yeah. and we, when we talked about Mary, we talk often about the characteristics that Jesus gets from God versus yeah. what he gets from Mary. And I think Mary gets shortchanged. We assume that all of the good characteristics came from the Father. And then often the only characteristic we attribute to being mortality, we can die. Like, can you imagine Mary's response being like, oh, great. I'm glad I could contribute that to the whole thing. But when you see Mary's response to me, when you teach the Jesus Christ and the everlasting gospel, one of the key principles there is, is that Jesus Christ is submissive to the father's will. That's a Mary trait. Oh yeah. And I'm not saying that he didn't get it from both parents, 
But we've got to acknowledge that Mary is passing some of these Christ-like attributes. Some of the Christ-like attributes that Preaching My Gospel talks about in chapter 6 are Mary attributes. Mm -hmm. These are things that, she, that Jesus would have learned at the knee of Mary. And, and I love verse 38. One of the great Christ-like attributes is being submissive to the will of the Father. And that is something that at least in part he got from his mom. Yeah. And, and just to outline that in connection with the next couple of verses, um, she goes to visit Elizabeth. So she's gone until John's born. So she's gone about three months, which is going to add it to more of the story that that's when you generally start to show. Mm -hmm. And she's three months along and is gone for three months. So Joseph doesn't really know what's happening because mm -hmm. she goes to a different city. Right. And we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, next week. But um, in uh, she comes in, she enters. In, this is 40 and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. So so John, as six months along in the womb. Goes he kind of does this little hop or kick or I whatever. I love the idea right? of a flip. I see yeah. somersaulting <laughs> yeah. in the and and. And Elizabeth speaks out and she says, as soon as I heard you speak, the babe leaped. And she says this in 43. She says, and whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Um, somebody pointed this out to me, and I, I love this idea. Who is the very first disciple that Jesus has? It's Mary, his mother. Mm -hmm. Who's number two? It's John. And who's number three? It's, it's Elizabeth. Mom. And you, you look at the hierarchical times of this. You have a virgin mom, an unborn baby, and an old lady. And those are Jesus. Like, if you were to ask who are Jesus' first three disciples, 90% of people are going to say, Peter, James, and John. They're yep. going to rattle off those yep. three. And instead, you look at this, and to me, that just testifies of who are Jesus' disciples. It's, it can be everybody. There is room for me. In this hierarchy of Jewish society, he starts with pretty low on the totem pole. And that's okay with him because Jesus doesn't just do the normal. He is Jesus. He, he invites everyone to come to him. He wants all to be his disciples. And there is room for every single person to come to learn the Savior. And, and I love that the Lord says, well, let's start with them. Yeah, because culturally these people have no voice. None. I mean, obviously the unborn, baby, yeah, the unborn yes. baby doesn't. Um, Mary having not officially married Joseph yet she's she's still just a child yeah. in the eyes of of cult of, of mm -hmm. society and Elizabeth because she's gone barren all of these years she would have been removed from having really any social influence a long time ago mm -hmm. um, I, I love the fact that Jesus connects there I also like the fact verse 41 I've, I, I it's easy to get to verse 44 and be like or verse 43 and think how did you get from like your baby flipping to this and but the key is verse 41 Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost and Joseph Smith said you can't receive the Holy Ghost and not get the spirit of revelation and so there's this revelatory process of of dawning the babe flips so something physical happens but there's a spiritual connection yeah. that has to be made by the Holy Ghost to say this is why the baby flipped. And, and that, again, it goes back to this idea of if you're going to gain a testimony of Jesus Christ, it's, it, it's got to be a spiritual experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I just, uh, we skipped over it a little bit, but I, I just love some of the, the promises that, that Gabriel gives to, um, mm -hmm. gives to Mary, that uh, the prophecies about Christ, that he shall be great. He's the son of the highest. 
The Lord shall give him the throne of David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom there shall be no end. And and so when you get to this this part that Mary is now starting to believe that she takes Gabriel's promise that with God nothing's impossible, be it unto me according to thy word, that she she's all in. And the true disciples of Jesus Christ are all in because they've made a connection to something they might see or experience to the heart, to the spirit. And I loved how you brought that up, that the spirit can, makes those connections to you so that you understand, I'm, I'm in. That's what makes disciples. And so you have this, this process through the gospels of Jesus gaining disciples. And it's because they see, they have an experience, this, the spirit testifies to them of that experience, and then they're all in. And you, we connect those two things. That's how disciples are made today. We have experiences in our lives where God answers our prayers. He hears us. We, we see little miracles and tender mercies. And we understand once the Spirit testifies to us, God knows me. Just like you knew Mary, just like you knew Zacharias. I have a job and a role to fill in the kingdom. Yeah. And I think it, it, Mary clearly sees the coming content. And, like, and, and we'll dive more into the culture and, and what the consequence of it w- with Mary and Joseph having to go to Bethlehem and why why Joseph takes her and um, but those things aren't like it's the challenges of discipleship aren't a surprise to Mary she knows right now what's going to happen I think it's kind of suggested in 34 I'm going to be in the small community the small religious community uh, where the religion is the culture and I'm going, you know, she's fully aware of the cultural consequences of, of being, uh, what's it was shunned, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not just her, but her boy will be shunned. You've got a, you've got a Jewish culture who has this belief of the sin of the parents can be passed on to the child. Uh, the disciples asking the question of, to Jesus, you know, who's, who, this man was born blind. Is that because he sinned or because the parents sinned? And the whole culture is going to see this pregnancy as a sin. And so, and, and Mary, I, there's not one person, I think, that, that grabs up the mantle of discipleship that doesn't at least comprehend to some degree the sacrifices that are going to be required. Oh. Whether that's at 19 going on a mission. I remember going to, I was in, going to Ryan Decker's farewell. Um, kid that was just a little bit older than me, he was sitting in his in his farewell and and he probably doesn't even remember saying this but i remember him saying i got asked when i was going to go on a mission or when i decided i got asked when i decided to go on a mission and he said i never decided it's just what we do and i think a lot of people join the church and, and as a young man growing up they just realize that that's it's just what we do and it's one of the costs of discipleship and so that so that with that idea the idea of mary saying be it unto me I think she's not just saying, okay, I'll accept this baby. It's also bring it. I'm all in. Bring all of the challenges of discipleship. I will I will carry them all. Yep. Love that. Anything about Zacharias? And I mean we already kind of touched on the fact that uh, you know, th- they try and name him John and, and when Elizabeth, I find this fascinating. This speaks to the culture a little bit. Everybody asks, what's his name going to be? Uh, and Elizabeth says, we're going to name him John. And everybody tells her, no. Nope. <laughs> That's the, no one, no. And so go get the like, dad. <laughs> go get John. We'll, we'll clear this Zacharias, right up. Go get, or go get Zacharias. Yeah. We'll clear this right up. And Zacharias says, here, let's write it down. And Zacharias, 
writes John, and then everybody says, you can't, you can't do this. Nobody in your family is named John. And then his tongue is opened, uh, and he, he tells them everything. And now everybody is all, all excited. And um, I love verse 67. His father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord of God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. So this is, again, Matthew drawing back, emphasizing Zacharias's connection to Old Testament prophecies about the house of David, this idea of a horn being raised up, a horn of salvation. Horn is symbolic of power. It's, it's symbolic in the, in the temple. Zacharias has got to be drawing to the horns on the corner of this, the altar and saying, it, by the authority of God, we, we now have the priesthood with us in a way that is going to be, you know, remember, for, to this point, the priesthood has been reserved. It's been limited, but with the birth of Christ, we're going to start rolling the priesthood out in its fullest, um, and that that horn, that priesthood power, is now being raised up, and John, his son, is the messenger to prepare the people for it. One final thought again, as, as you brought up the horn, uh, we mentioned back in Matthew um, that Christ means anointed one, it also means Messiah, and they carried around these horns filled with oil, and so... Um, anciently, kings were anointed before they came king, like Saul and David, um, and priests like Aaron's sons were anointed before they did their priestly duties. And now you have this idea of the horn is power, but it's also power to do something, mm -hmm. that John is going to be doing something, and that Jesus, as the anointed one, was anointed in our midst in the pre-earth life, anointed that we trusted him to be our Messiah. And, and he stepped into that role before he had done it, and we trusted in him because he had that power awesome well let's close there i think this one sounds went, great this one went well I, I we're excited to be into the new testament and we'll keep drawing back to the old testament but uh we hope you enjoy luke 1 and matthew 1 in your study this week and uh and we'll see you in the next one matthew 2 and luke 2 well, thanks again for joining us on Take a Second for Come Follow Me. Brother Black and myself want to emphasize that in this episode or any other episode, there's nothing that we've said that is meant to or can in any way be interpreted as the official doctrine or policy or practice of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Brother Black and myself simply represent two guys that enjoy talking about Scripture and, and on our own life experiences as it relates to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and and hope that in sharing some of our thoughts and, and insights but certainly our personal opinions and nothing more that uh, maybe it might open up the scriptures a little bit to you so thanks again for joining us on take a second and we will see you in our next episode